Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Foyer on Parashat Kititze. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. And now, here is Rav Mike Foyer. Parashat Kititze, Remember Amalek. You know, at first glance, Kitete might strike one as a bit of a laundry list. I mean, there are 74 mitzvot, 74 separate commandments in this parsha, And as far as I know, that's the most of any you can find. And sometimes, as you're going through it all, they seem a little bit disconnected. To be fair, each one is a gold mine deserving to be delved and explored in full. And taken all together... They're more than just a bit overwhelming. It's almost a critical piece of the tapestry of Moshe's final speech. And I will say, if you want to read it and make some sense of the whole, then you have to have in mind the fact that it was that, a speech. And just like the way we communicate in the written form doesn't really match the spoken, you got to kind of hear it in order to move from piece to piece. But I got to be honest, when it came time to contemplate something to share on this Parsha, I leapt for whatever little bit of narrative I could find. It's been so long, right? Because after all these commandments, one after another, they touch on the aspects of life, diverse things as war, burial, marriage, lost objects. I don't know what else I can think of. There's so much in there. There is a little momentary return to our story. Sort of. I mean, it says in Devarim 25, 17 through 19, the last three lines of the Parsha, Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. Right? Undeterred by fear of God, he surprised down the march. You were tired and weary. Cut down the stragglers in your rear. You may be familiar with this, of course. This is how we fulfill the mitzvah of remembering Amalek that we connect most closely to Purim, although, frankly, it's an obligation all year round. Therefore, the Parsha goes on to finish. When the Lord God grants you safety from all your enemies around, in the land that the Lord your God has given you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. Right? That's right. Remember to wipe out, don't forget. Now, this is a story, and it's a command. Or, properly speaking, it's a command that merges out of very specific interpretation and reading that we place on that story. And not surprisingly, both the command and the way it comes about revolve around memory, which once again opens out for me the depth of the book of Devarim. Now, I don't know if you listened to my Parshat Akev podcast, but if you did, then you might recall that we spoke back there about the fact that we are right now in Deuteronomy, right? The book of Devarim is called, of course, Deuteronomy in the Greek, and the rabbis called it Mishneh Torah. Now, Mishneh Torah is usually read as a repetition of the Torah, and it's certainly a correct way to look at it. That's where Deuteronomy, second Torah, gets its name. But remember, Mishneh is also what we call that backbone structure of the oral law that was written down in the second, you know, second, third century. We could talk about that some other time. It was written down in late antiquity in order to help us maintain the sharpness that the oral law demands. And I say sharpness intentionally because that Shinun, the action of repetition, which goes into the Lashon, the language of Mishnah, isn't just a repetition. It's also how we sharpen a knife. 
It's shinun. Because when you sharpen a knife, you're doing a repetitive action, but always at a slightly different angle. And here in the last lines of our parsha, we're being called to sharpen our understanding of a story by approaching it from a slightly different angle. It was a different angle for Moshe, looking back at something which had happened 40 years ago, and we'll see in a second that he presented in a very specific light that allows one to draw very particular conclusions for him in the present. But, as I said from the beginning, this is a mitzvah for all of us every year, to go back to this story, to remember this story, and through it to somehow wipe out the memory of Amalek, and we can't forget. Meaning, Moshe looked back in his present 40 years into the past and sharpened his understanding through a retelling of the story, and that itself has consequences for how it would be carried forward into the future. Because, of course, we got both the original experience and his original retelling. Now recall, back in the narrative presentation of Amalek, that's Exodus chapter 17, right after we've come through the Red Sea, the high point, if you will, of that point of Jewish history, if not all time, it says that we're in the wilderness of Tzin. There's Exodus 17, lines 1 through 8. You can see it in the source sheet there. We camped at Rephidim, no water for the people to drink. It's a story which is going to become familiar in the coming 40 years. But for now, it's actually the second time it's happened. Give us water to drink. People say Moshe. Moshe says, oh, why are you quarreling with me? I talk to God. So God tells Moshe, you know, go and strike the rock. This is where Moshe is actually given the explicit command to strike the rock. And I'm moving quickly through this because it's not really our moment of focus. But so Moshe takes the staff, walks before all the people. He strikes the rock. And it says the name was the place was named Masa Umiriba. Similar, if not exactly same as the place where Moshe is told to speak to the rock strikes it and is punished. That's a story unto itself. But it's called Maset Umiribah because, quote, the Israelites quarreled and because they tried the Lord, saying, Hayesh Hashem im ein. Is God amongst us or not? And then, in what strikes one as perhaps a non sequitur, it says, Vayavo Amalek. Amalek came and fought with Israel there at Rufidim. And like I said, we might be tempted in that reading to see the arrival of Amalek as having no connection to the story of Masa Umariba, the people's struggle and doubt which comes before it. In fact, in the text, if you look, lines 7 and 8 are separated by a patuach. Right? The pay in the text there is what's known as an open line, a structure organic to the flow of the Torah, which we generally understand as a paragraph break, as it will, a separation between ideas that may then be unrelated. But that doesn't seem to be the case when we look at how Moshe retells the story. There might be a potential non-sequitur in the narrative, but here in our parsha, in the retelling in Devarim, this is how it sounds. <laughs> Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. Right? Undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on the march. When you were famished and worried, cut down the stragglers. Now, what interests me is this part of the verse that the translator obviously already prejudiced through translation, that being, of course, the core level of interpretation, says, Elohim. In the Hebrew, it's Asher Korcha Baderech, right, who happened upon you. Who, who like, cut off the tail, at the tail, all the weak who were behind you. And you were tired and worn out. And did not fear God. And the question is, who's the subject of that phrase? Now certainly, as the translator did, it can be applied to Amalek. I mean, after all, here they are attacking Israel immediately after God has split the Red Sea. You don't get less God-fearing than that. 
But the truth of the matter is, it could also be applied to Am Yisrael, right? Because what came before is a profound lack of Yirat, Shemaim, right? It says they called that place Masam Riba because Am Yisrael was arguing, not just with Moshe really, but on some level with God, because they said, Hayesh Hashem Bikirbeno Im Ayin. Is God among us or not? Now, what kind of question is that? At the best times in life, we might call it somewhat plagued by doubt, but here they are, having just crossed the Red Sea, having witnessed ten plagues culminating in the destruction of the firstborn, the drowning of Pharaoh's 600 chariots, they're following a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day. What do they mean? Is God with us or not? Now, we could understand this in many ways, and I'm sure you've heard me talk about it. This could be a very childlike question. That just like when I play peekaboo with my one-year-old, I hide my face and then he laughs when I reveal it because I actually didn't exist in that moment, so too Am Yisrael is in a childlike state at this stage of their development. And so unless Hashem is actually leading them by the hand, raining down mana in that moment, then they feel abandoned, which is, you know, in all fairness, not so hard to imagine out there in the God-forsaken wilderness. But like I said, we could read this applying to Amalek, or we could read this applying to Am Yisrael. And what really decides which reading lasts, in my eyes, is actually the context in which the retelling comes in our parsha here in Devarim. Now, remember I said we had a laundry list of mitzvot in this parsha, 74. And the last one, the one that precedes this slight return to the narrative, is the following. This is Devarim 25, 13 through 15. Again, the source sheet. You shouldn't have in your pouch alternate weights, large or small. You shouldn't have in your house these weights. You should have it says you should have completely honest weights and measures. Right? Why? Right? It says, In order that you should have long life upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. And then it makes a very clear statement. Right? Anyone who does these things, anyone who deals in such a way dishonestly is abhorrent. That toy vaz, of course, a loaded term in today's discourse. It's an abomination. It's abhorrent to the Lord. Now, from a practical standpoint, we all get this. This is why most, at least in my mind, Western countries, I'm sure it's worldwide phenomenon, actually have a legal office. In, the, in, the, in America, it's often an elected position of the guy who checks the weights and measures. The gas station is probably where you encounter it more, most often. But after this presentation of what is on its own, like I said, a very important commandment, then we get a seeming non sequitur once again. That's Devarim 17 through 19. It says, remember what Amalek did to you on your journey. After you left Egypt, how undeterred by fear. What? Oh, okay, I mean, is this just part of my laundry list? It's yet another mitzvah, and this is actually the commandment which closes our parsha. Could be. It could be a non sequitur, except that the Midrash does not see it that way. If you take a look at that source sheet, you'll see the Midrash Tanhuma, one of the most beautiful, by the way, and accessible Midrashim. I highly recommend, if you're looking to get into Midrash, pick up a Tanhuma. Even in Hebrew, you can often find them with all the vowels and the cantillation, making it easier to read. Not cantillation, but all the vowels, making it easier to read. I encourage you. And there are plenty of good English versions out there, even on Sfaria. But for our purposes, Tanhuma of our Parsha, Kitetze 8.1, says the following. Rabbani opened his discourse with the following quote from Mishle, from Proverbs. Says, Mozne Mirma, Tuevat Hashem, met the fraudulent scares on abomination to the Lord, echoing directly this commandment at the end of our Parsha. And then he says, If you see a generation whose measures are false, 
You'll know that the kingdom, meaning the forces that be, government, is going to engage that generation in battle. They're going to make life miserable. Why, he says? Because the next verse in Proverbs says, right? Meaning uh, the, the, there is fraudulent skills and abomination to the Lord. It's not the next verse, sorry. It's the one we just quoted. And now after that is written, this is the next verse, right? Right? It's gonna. It says when deliberate with when deliberate wickedness comes, disgrace comes as well. Meaning, if you're gonna act this way, God is going to punish you, and you will be disgraced. Mishka goes gone and um, brings a couple of other examples, but then Rebbe Levi says at the end, Moshe also alluded to this importance of honest weights and staying out of trouble with the malchut. He says, you shall not have alternative weights in your bag, larger and smaller. Should not have in your house, our Parsha. Because, because if you do so, the empire will come and engage you in battle. Same quote. And what's his proof? Everyone who does these things, who acts as honestly, is an abomination to the Lord. That's the end of our Parsha. And what's written right after he notes? Remember, Zecher Ma Asher Asalcha Amalek. Remember that which Amalek did for you. Meaning, Proverbs Shmaberbs says Rebbe Levi, our Parsha tells us very clearly that God hates dishonesty and weights and measures. And what comes right after that in the world, if you do so, is the punishment from Amalek. Now, this says so much. First of all, it offers us the understanding that Amalek came not out of a lack of fear of God, but in the hand of God as a punishment. You know, look up in the Gemara and Megillah. I'm not going to get into it now, but it calls Amalek Ritzua Ra'ali Israel. It's an evil strap, the whip with which Israel is beaten. And beaten by whom? If you look at the examples there, beaten by God. Right, And we also see that this punishment comes not just for matters of faith, the ones that appear to trigger them in the arrival in the narrative back there in Exodus. Is God with us or not? You can understand why the Lord would bring the wrath down on that one. But it also comes due to this seemingly mundane act of dishonest weights, which, of course, is not mundane at all. First of all, it's theft. And I know that private property might get a bad name in certain circles these days. But let's never lose track of the fact that you may be ideologically opposed to private property, but that doesn't justify theft or damage of someone else's. Not only is this theft, though, it's a corruption of the very standards of measure which could offer hope for honest business. This is a foundation on which society rests. If you can't go into the shuk and believe, you make a decision, you want to pay 10 kilo for rice, you don't want to. That's your decision. But you hope that when you give those, the, sorry, 10 shekel for kilo, you hope when you give those 10 shekels, you get an honest kilo. And if you don't, how on earth are you ever going to get recompense? If you can't get paid back, the scales are off. Right? Furthermore, this is an action. This corruption of weights and measures, which itself shows a profound lack of faith. One, in my eyes, far deeper than the fear-driven sense of existential dread that Israel experienced in the wilderness, thirsty and abandoned. I mean, maybe astounding in our eyes, Red Sea, Ten Plagues, and all that. But the reality is, I think that it would be very hard to believe in tomorrow, much less God, in that situation. This kind of theft actually implies that God isn't in control. Somehow God can't give you enough. And that the solution is taking what doesn't belong to you. And that you will, first of all, ever be able to lay your hands on anything which doesn't belong to you. Second of all, you'll somehow master the future. And third of all, that it's okay to do so at the direct deception of another. And on some level, 
There's no deeper failure of faith than that. I don't care what you believe about God. And last but certainly not least that we can derive from this juxtaposition is that we can think of Amalek as a malchut. And remember, Rabbi Levi said, if you see a generation whose measures are false, know that the government will engage the malchut, right? that the, the government will engage that generation in battle. And he brings his proof from the juxtaposition of weights and measures and the appearance of Amalek. And in this, he's simply echoing the great prophet of the nations, Bilam, who back in Bamidbar recognize that Amalek may not be a government or empire in the formal sense, but they surely are the root of an alternative reality. As it says in Bamidbar 2420, Bilam, at the end of all of his blessing curses, etc., looks up and he sees Amalek and he takes up a theme and he says, Reshit Koyim Amalek, that a leading nation, but more than a leading nation, the source of nations, a alternative to Israel, who is also called Reshit, source of nations, is Amalek. Ah, Vachito Ade Oved, but its fate is to perish forever. And that last bit brings us back to our Parsha. And this power of Shinun, of repetition, of retelling a story over and over, always from a slightly different angle, because of course, the time I tell it this year, who I am, I won't be the next. And Moshe says, right? When the Lord God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land which the Lord God has given to you as an inheritance, wipe out the memory of Amalek from beneath the heavens. Don't forget. This act of remembering, which we're called to every year, is triggered by a simple obligation. It's not just God's job to battle with the reality, as it said back in Exodus, that there will be war between God and Amalek, basically for all generations. Now it's our obligation to erase Amalek, but not just from the world, from ourselves. Because once the enemies around are vanquished, we're meant to turn to the enemy within, uprooting the sense that anything that we willfully take from someone else could ever be ours. And through this, to set the world on an honest and deeply faithful foundation. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Please be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week as Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Beresh teaches on Parashat Ki Tavo. Thanks for listening.